All right, so we'll get going. It's uh, 6 o'clock. We'll get started with our lesson tonight is back in Daniel. Uh, so let's start with prayer. Father, thank you again for your precious word. Oh, you're so amazing, Lord. We are so grateful to be able to serve you, to, to love and know you because of the life of Jesus in us. Praise you for that, and thank you for your word. It is amazing. And uh, we're going to look tonight at some things that you have told us about the future that are, um, they are awesome. So please uh, help our hearts to be open as we look at it. Um, teach us the things we need to know through it. It's your uh, inerrant word, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, well, I'm off the page here. If you're anything like me, you're having to live one day at a time these days in a world that almost defies reality. To keep your sanity, or at least not to have to have a screaming session at least once a day, uh, you're not allowed to be shocked at anything anymore, not allowed to think that anything is off limits in terms of uh, oh, a host, sef- sexual perversion, public lying, deception, moral and ethical injustice, or just the complete inversion of common sense. You're not allowed to push back or question that. It's like, shh, let it be. And so seriously, I am living these days by prayer and the Word of God every day. And I mean that. I'm not trying to sound like some kind of super saint because I am not, believe me. And God knows that I am not. I struggle and sin every day just like every believer. But I have found a place of peace and hope through God's Word and His truth and His promises to me that I can count on. And also just through personal contact with Him through prayer. It's the only way I'm surviving and, and having a joyful heart in this world. And Daniel did the same thing. We looked last week at his the serious prayer of his, and we had 20-some verses where he poured out his heart to God, and he did it in terms of what the Scriptures had to say to him about his people Israel and their return back to the land. Even though he was living in maybe the most pagan nation there was at the time, uh, he stayed faithful. He, uh, they worshipped false, non-existent gods. They, they forced things onto their people that were wrong and pagan. But Daniel kept his faith. He was faithful to God. He was faithful to his country, Israel. And so he hung in there. And so I, even as I think about where we are and in our country, and, I, and I, like I said at the start, as we look around and see uh, almost amazingly uh, dark it's getting, we're not there yet. We don't have a king over us that's making us worship pagan gods, uh, setting up statues that we have to bow down to or die. So as bad as it is, we w- didn't have it as bad as Daniel in terms of his environment, and he was faithful. So we can, be, we can do the same. So, but it was w- the result of this passionate prayer of his that the answer came that we're going to look at tonight, these four verses that are amazing, <clears throat> they're uh, somewhat technical, and I'm hoping that uh, um, we don't let our eyes glass over as we try and decipher what he has to say, but it's worth, it's worth the effort. Believe me, it is. It is. This is one of the most amazing four verses in, in the Bible. To, that being said, and as Mark, you mentioned last Sunday, God is a communicator. 
He wants us to know what He has to say. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to know His plans. He's written them down for us to understand. But the only ones who can understand are those who have the mind of the Spirit. If you've been born again, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, He can teach you the truth of the Scriptures. Otherwise, no. And we... Where am I? i got to get to the spot there. There we go. 1 Corinthians, and you know this, uh, chapter 2, 14 through 16 says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. He who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. And just a word on that, if you're spiritual or not, it just doesn't mean that you act all pious. The Bible means by spiritual there is that you are born again, that you have life in Christ and the Holy Spirit inside of you. That's spiritual. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And that's a statement from the Holy Spirit to us, that if we know Christ, we have his mind, we can understand what he has to say. So I guess just as a maybe not a warning, but as a, as a bell ringer in your head. If you can't understand this, or if you can't understand anything of the Scriptures, none of them makes any sense to you, you don't get it, you just want to throw it away, you might not be born again. You might really need to seek Christ and ask Him to come into you, to, to make you new. All right, so let's get into it. We'll look at the outline again. We're at the very tail end of chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Four verses, but it's going to take a while to unpack here, so (laughs) we're going to get with the program. All right. So as you can see from the simple outline, we're at the end of the chapter, uh, prepared by 23 verses of prayer by Daniel, asking God to fulfill His promise to Israel, recorded by Jeremiah possibly just a couple of decades before Daniel's exile. So he's praying according to God's Word. And in, back in Jeremiah, and just in my Bible reading, and again, I hope whoever's watching here has a daily Bible reading plan going in their life, it is a blessing you will, God will speak to you. You want God to speak to you, read the Scriptures. He will speak to you about Himself and all the things that He's doing. And He literally speaks in those words. That's what Daniel was counting on, and we looked at it before. Jeremiah twenty nine ten and 11 says, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know that the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And so you think about those exiled uh, Israelites, these Jews in Babylon, thought for all they knew, they would never go home. They could have been there for the rest of their life and died there. But God made a promise to them, and Daniel was counting on it. And he prayed uh, fervently for that answer from God. So anyway, that's that's how we got to where we are tonight. This is these uh, last four verses. Uh, we're going to, there's just another quick look at where we are, his third vi- uh, vision written in the first year, Darius, about 539 B.C. So let me just read through the four verses, and then we'll talk about them. Uh, Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city 
to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint in the most holy place. Those are six things there. That could be a sermon, but we're going to try and keep our keep it going here. So you're about so are you to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and it will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And then verse 27, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. In the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And so just uh, the weight of that, those four verses there, obviously you're not just going to look over the top of those and go, oh, okay, yeah, good, all right, so well, let's move on. These might represent one of those most important and amazing prophecies of all time. And, it, you know, um, though the men who love and teach the Scriptures and teach prophecy, this is central to our understanding of God's framework for what's going on in the world and what will be in the future. And as I've studied and listened to a lot of different things, I continually come up against opposition to, to I guess you'd even just say Bible scholars, uh, theologians, who want to push back against just a clear and a literal understanding of these texts of Scripture and of Daniel. They want to, to push it aside and say, hmm, we, we don't get it. We, it's not worth looking at. And it's, it's just wrong. It is amazing what God has said here, and we're going to understand why as we get through this. First of all, just to, to start out with in verse 24, we have to know that this is spoken to Daniel's people, to Israel. And I get there's pushback against that these days. Anti-Semitism is continuing to grow in spite of just the the inconsistency of that, the illogic of trying to blame Israel for everything and then turning against them. For even in the evangelical church, we're seeing a turning away from not not the the wrong things that Israel might do as a people or the Jews. They're full of that, just like we are. But God never gave up his promise to Israel and he will fulfill that and we're going to see how. The... So it's not, these promises are not spoken to the church. And they are spoken to Israel. And that's really the only way you can make sense of these. If you look at this and try and figure out how, you know, how does the church fit into this, it does not fit into this. But it doesn't mean it's not glorious for the church to understand and know. God wants us to know these things. As the church, it solidifies our faith. It it. It just glorifies God for how amazing and awesome He is. It um, encourages our hearts to know that He is going to keep His promises to Israel. So that means He's going to keep His promises to us also. We know that. So that so it's not a jealousy thing to where we say, well, uh, yeah, we can't, Israel's done. We, we get all the blessings now. That's wrong. That's wrong. And we don't do that. And just, just to look at what Paul has to say about that in Ephesians 
it says, and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was a Jew of Jews. Paul kept the law. He had a clear conscience before God. He was fastidious in his keeping of the law. He was the top Pharisee. You know, maybe not the top Pharisee, but you'd have to say of all, he, he described himself as one who was surpassing his fellow Pharisees who were already uh, orthodox and law-keeping and rule-keeping. And he was the top of the line until Christ saved him. And Ephesians 3.8 says, To me, Paul, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And that statement alone, to think about Paul, he was trying to kill Christians. That was what he was after to start with. He thought they were totally blasphemous and wrong, chasing them down. Then he got saved. And then he suddenly realized the truth. And so he was now God assigned him to preach to the Gentiles instead. That's kind of ironic, but he loved it. And to bring light to what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God not, might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So God's message for Gabriel is for Israel. Paul said the church is a mystery. It wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. God brought it on. We are, we are there. We're part of the church, not Israel. And so we look back and we hear this message that God has given to Israel, and we rejoice in that because those are his truths, his promises. So verse 24 gives us the purpose of these 70 weeks, and the remaining verses tell what will happen during those weeks. But I want, first of all, to clear up this terminology of the unit of the measure of time, the weeks. Verse 25, we'll go ahead of verse, and it says, You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there'll be seven weeks. And that word for weeks is heptad or sevens. It's a different word in Hebrew, but it means sevens. It doesn't mean like we would assume week of days. It just it means sevens, seven sevens. And 62 sevens, weeks, it will be built again with plaza and moat, even times of distress. So in, in our day, of course, when you say, I'm going to be gone for a week, obviously you assume a week of days. But a week in the Old Testament didn't necessarily mean days. It could have been uh, a week of days, uh, a week of years, a week of centuries, if that was in the context, and that's what it was talking about. It just meant sevens. So... It has to be determined by the context. And again, we talk about hermeneutics. And, and when I listen to a lot of these critics, they kind of abandon this, this idea of interpretive law, that you, you have to follow the good rules of interpretation to understand any of the scriptures. God spoke to us logically because that's the kind of God he is. He created us that way. And so we take them literally, grammatically, biblically. So we compare scripture uh, historically and in context. We, we look at what it's talking about in context. Uh, so just, just for another scripture to explain how that might work, if you think back in Genesis, Genesis 29:18, and this is kind of a sad and irritating story in itself, but it talks about Jacob and finding this, this young girl that he wanted to be his wife so bad and he was in love with her. He was willing to work seven years to get her in marriage. 
And so he goes to, uh, and he loved Rachel. So 29.18 says, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, uh, talking to Laban, her brother, said, I will serve you seven years, or excuse me, her father, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And so Laban comes back and says, uh, complete the week for this one, and we'll give you the other also for service, which you will serve with me for another seven years. And so he says the week he's talking about is seven years. He wants uh, Jacob to serve him, you know, as a hired man for seven years to get Rachel. He called it a week. That's a week of years. So that's Scripture talking about a week being seven years. So, so Jacob did and completed her week, seven years, her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. That was, that's the end of the story. He had already worked seven years and got tricked into taking the other sister for the, his wife for the first seven years. So I'm just trying to explain here this, this term for weeks of years. But yeah, I'm starting to get into the story. and It wasn't fair. It didn't seem fair. But Jacob went into Rachel also, and he indeed loved her more than Leah. That was the first sister. And he served with Laban for another seven years. So we're going back and forth in those verses just freely to talk about them as, as years, seven years, and a week. So that's, a, that's an example out of Scripture that supports this idea when we're in Daniel that we're talking here about weeks of years. And any, even the critics, even the, the theologians who would not accept a dispensational uh, interpretation of it have to agree that it was years. It doesn't make any sense for it to be anything else but weeks of years. Um, so we have no argument for the fact that the Jews know the difference between weeks of days and weeks of years. They're both possible, and in our context, chapter 9 requires weeks of years. And so as, as we continue, we're going to assume that in how we would calculate what God had to say about this time frame. We're talking about weeks of years, sevens of years. So verse 25 breaks the time frame into two sections. Uh, the section of 69, actually in three, but if you add the first two together, you get 69 weeks, and the later or last week is the 70th week. And it clearly establishes a beginning and an end point of the 69 weeks, which we're going to look at in detail in a minute. But so let's go back to verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So we're looking at these six things here that God put together through Daniel that, uh, that the angel Gabriel revealed to him in God's plan for the future. These things all have to be accomplished by God's decree by the end of this period, this 490 years, because he says 70 weeks have been determined. So 70 times 7 is 490. We've determined them those to be years, weeks of years, so we're talking about a time frame of 490 years. And so when we investigate these results, note that some of these have not yet been completed. Those things, all those have to be done for an, in order for this 490 years to be completed. All six things. So we'll look at those one by one. The first three have to do with sin. The second three with righteousness. God hates sin. I hope we don't have to go into any 
description or explanation to, to make the point that God hates sin. He does. The Bible is full of his pronouncements against sin and rebellion and, and the results that are going to come from that. He hates those things. Sin is rampant in our world, so none of these six have been accomplished as of today. But for just a brief explanation, we'll look a little closer at each one. First, it says, transgression, to, to be finished, to finish the transgression. If, if transgression is to be finished, it has to mean the end of all transgression. Uh, George Bush Sr. and many other globalists talked about a new world order. Uh, they're not going to get it, but that's what he talked about. To finish the transgression will require a new world order, but it is a world order that's going to be established by the Lord Jesus Christ. He will establish his kingdom. It will be a new world order. That's going to be the, the end of transgression. Number two says to make an end of sin, and it's pretty close to the first one, but it says no more sin allowed. All sinners will have to be eliminated from the kingdom. Only righteousness will be left. And so this new world order established by Jesus will only include I'll say the righteous, because it means those who have been born again, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Not, no sinners, but sinners redeemed by the blood of Christ will be allowed in the kingdom. No sin remaining. So it's another thing that has to happen by the end of this 490 years is the end of sin. That has not happened either. Three, and in this praise God for number three, is to make atonement for iniquity. And this is another one where you could have, you know, a course for, for a quarter in college or something you could have on the atonement. And I, I, I don't remember it verbatim, but I know that uh, um, Charles Spurgeon made a quote that said, any pulpit that didn't allow for the atonement to be the central issue should be, and it was something like, uh, broken into splinters. He hated the idea that any pulpit would be filled with someone who would not speak for the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for sinners. But to say, well, we're just trying to be good, we, you know, let's have a lot of good lessons, we'll do our best, we'll do better. No, the atonement meant Jesus Christ had to die for sinners. And that's what, praise God for that. He did it. He did it. To, bring in ever, uh, to make atonement for iniquity was the death of Jesus Christ, to die for sin. We see it in a couple places all over the Scriptures, but here's a couple that are, that are key. And we see Isaiah 53 as the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament, talking about God's purpose in the death of Christ. Isaiah 53.10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied, and by his knowledge, the righteous one, and here it is, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. That phrase there, that's the exchange. That's Jesus' death for our life. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So 
We're looking, the atonement means someone died for my sin, for me. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But God sent Jesus. He could do it. He did do it. That's the atonement for iniquity that Jesus paid for. But so why all the fuss about it then? Why is this even necessary? It's because of our hopeless plight without his death on the cross for sin. If you want to brush the cross away and say we don't need all that stuff out of the Old Testament, it's too uh, offensive to to our ears to hear that these days. Uh, God help us that we would not put that message right out where it belongs. And here's why. John 3.36, For everyone, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We're big on the love message, and God does love. God is love. He's the source of all love. But he is also the source of wrath. And this verse says it very clearly. There's, there's two camps to be in. Two. No more. The, the world is, the whole world, you can put it into two places. All the religions, all the, the self-help literature, philosophies, uh, man is good, all those things are on one side. Religion, all the cults, even the, the uh, I can do my best and God will accept it, like the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses. And even the Roman Catholic Church has morphed into a good works organization. They're here. And then there's life in Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, you have eternal life. If you're in the Son, you have life. Otherwise, it's everything else. So then number four says, our text says to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's important. We, we, the words have meaning, and God puts things in order here. He brings the atonement first. Then he talks about everlasting righteousness. Sin has to be dealt with in God's economy for everlasting righteousness to be brought in. The Bible says that Jesus Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God's plan, A, from the very beginning, was that Jesus Christ would have to come and die for sin. Uh, But then that allowed him to bring in everlasting righteousness. It also speaks of the exclusion of anything not righteous. This kingdom will have only righteousness in it, and it will be everlasting. We talked about some of those, and I know Mark, you quoted um, Daniel 7 a couple of weeks ago too. It's that, that chapter, again, it talks about the kingdom of Christ coming and being crushing every other Gentile nation and power and starting a kingdom that Jesus will initiate. He will start it. He will rule it. And so this new kingdom that Jesus will bring in is at the end of the 70th week. So where am I? Back here. So to bring in everlasting righteousness is at the end of the 490 years. It's the end of the 70th week of years. Number five talks about, um, at this point, the need for vision and prophecy will be over. It says to seal up vision and prophecy, meaning to, to end it, to put a parenthesis around it. It's done. At that point, vision and prophecy, will there will be no need. God will have fulfilled all the prophetic words that he had told us in the scriptures were coming. So that this, these verses are big. 
because it describes where God is going to end up, where he's going to bring the ending, and it's going to be at the end of this set of years. Verse 25 says, You are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree... Oh, I'm sorry. Let me, let me talk about six first. Lastly, anointing the most holy place. So again, using good interpretive methods, we're talking about an actual place. Uh, liberal uh, theologians who, who don't want to put solid uh, truth onto these, these years, this timing, uh, to put an uh, exactness into the future and what God has predicted and promised as a, a literal kingdom on earth. When they want to deny that, they want to take the, the literalness away from, from any of these things. Like this wouldn't be a place, it's just this kingdom is a heart kingdom, it's a new attitude, it's a, but the anointing of the most holy place is a place. It's God's place, it's his temple that he will anoint, and most likely the millennial temple written of it in detail in Ezekiel 40 to 44. And that's, there's a long section in there that if you're in a daily Bible reading program and you get to Ezekiel 40, it's like, oh no! And so you're, you're scanning pretty fast for it. And maybe I'll, as I mature, maybe I'll get better at, uh, at valuing that more. But, you know, it's God's truth. But it is. It's this temple that we have not seen. And it, and it won't be the the tribulation temple either. It will be the one that describes it in Ezekiel as the millennial temple. It's the last one that God will build. So those are the six things. Those all have to be accomplished at the end of this time frame we're looking at, at the end of the 49 or the uh, 70 weeks, the 490 years. And so in verse 25, the Holy Spirit doesn't say, well, you're to guess and speculate about what might happen in the future. He says, no, to know and discern. And so those are things he wants us to know. He's not being fuzzy about it, and he gives us timing. He wants us to know it. He wants us to search it out. And that's another thing that kind of irks me about um, skeptics. They, They don't value just putting time in to study the scriptures and believe what they say and put compare scripture and understand what how things work together they don't put a value on that but it it's how we come to know the scriptures they kind of denigrate this idea they they scoffed at this idea that um uh dispensationalists were were strong on rightly dividing the word of truth. It's like, yeah, they were using that as a mantra to, to go with all their wrong stuff. Sorry, no, but that was God. That was God who said that. He said, study or be diligent to study the word, know it, be a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It means handling accurately the scriptures. It's, that's what we're supposed to do. It's not a bad thing. So anyway, we're going to look at this. So there's a, there's a specific starting and ending point here. As we look at this, verse 25, <clears throat> it says, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So there's the two points. There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat. So that's seven weeks, those 49 years, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So we want to look at a, uh, the starting point of the 70 weeks. 
Nehemiah talks about it. So we look at Nehemiah 2, 1, 7, and 8, uh, just as it references this starting point that we're talking about. There's a couple of other places where uh, there was going to rebuild the temple. There was talk about rebuilding the temple, but the, the prophecy says that you would rebuild Jerusalem, not just the temple. And so this particular prophecy has to deal with this event right here in Nehemiah 2, 1, 7, and 8. It came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through it until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And so those were the things he asked for, specifically about going and going back to rebuild Jerusalem. If that... Uh, and the king granted me to them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. So there, that's it right there. Letters, he wanted letters to be given. Uh, first, from the governors of the provinces, a letter to Asaph about materials, and then the king granted him. That was a decree that he could go back and build. The date of that, uh, and again, as I read, or as I studied this, history confirms the date of Artaxerxes' rule, and this very day was is able to be calculated back to March 14th, 445 B.C. That's a Gregorian date. Of, obviously, that's how we uh, um, talk about our months. But this is calculated back, so this the month Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes is able to be pinpointed, and in Jewish... Um, uh, Jewish law, if, it, if a date isn't given, it's the first day of the month. So we know to the day that it's the first. And the first of that, and the first uh, in the month of Nisan calculates to March 14th. So it's not the first of March, but it's the first day of the month Nisan in the 20th year of Anaxerxes. That calculates to March 14th, 445 BC. So we have a beginning point for the prophecy pinpointed to the day right there. So then we want to look at the end point. We're trying to determine what what is this timing that the, the prophecy is talking about. So the end point, and I'm not going to read the two passages. We don't have time. I'm, I'm skating already. But um, Zechariah 9 says, this is the prophecy of the triumphal emptory from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph. Uh, o daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. That's, so that's who it is, the king. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the prophecy establishes Jesus as the king to come in. He's not a, a servant or he's not a messenger. He's the king. The king is coming in. Luke 19, 28-44 tells the whole story of Jesus coming in and presenting himself at the temple as the king to Israel. And that day is also calculated to be April 6th, 32 A.D. And I'm not going to go, I can't go into the calculations of it, but uh, Sir Robert Anderson is, um, 
he was he was a detective in the Scotland Yard, so and very uh, a very intelligent guy, also a solid Christian, and he he dedicated the rest of his uh, life to making these calculations. He has a book that you could get get to read all the details of it, uh, and I think it's called uh, I have it in the note here somewhere, but I don't see it. It's here. But he, he wrote a book, I think it's The Prince That Is to Come, or The Coming Prince, one of those. But Sir Robert Anderson wrote this book. The calculations are all in there in detail throughout all these years. He ended up at April 6, 32 AD. And so that's the 69 weeks out of the 70 weeks. So just another another slide to try and I know this is a glassy eye kind of thing where you start talking about all these numbers, but the seven years or the seven weeks, the first part of it is 49 years. Then it says 62 weeks, that's 434 years, and then one week or a year, one week of years, seven years. So you add those all together, you get for the first two parts, the seven and the 62 are 69 weeks. 483 years, 173,880 days. So that section is very important because that very day on on April 6, 32 AD, was the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to present himself as king to the exact day. Critics don't like it. They, They scoff at it, but nobody has ever disproved it. God predicted the, this stretch of years, almost 500 years to the day that Jesus would come in. It leaves a week, seven years left over. So the prophecy covers the first part. It gets Jesus into the, temp, or into the temple presenting himself as king. It gets us there in the 69 weeks. Bam, it's done. There it is. It's already happened. And it was calculated and fulfilled by God. I think I have a slide that, that uh, translates it into the Gregorian calendar too. So either way you do it, prophetic years in the Bible are 360 days. Our years are 365 days. So you have to make adjustments. But even at that, you can still make the Gregorian calendar adjustments to come up to that 173,880 days still, those exact number of days that it took from the, the pronouncement to rebuild Jerusalem to Jesus' entry. Precisely. That's God. Verse 26 says, oh, and here's my note there. It says his book is entitled The Coming Prince. So if you're interested in looking at all the details of it, if you don't want to believe it, get his book and read the details. It's in there. Verse 26 says, Then after the 62 weeks the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood even to the end, there will be war, desolation to determine. So here's another problem the critics get to. Why would you not just, 70 weeks means, okay, so we got to Jesus' entry, then just go another seven years after that, we're all done. There, It's all fulfilled. We saw what the six things that had to be accomplished were. There's no way that for in another seven years that was, so we looked at uh, March 6th, 32 AD, and you add seven years, so you have 39 AD. The, there's another 
41 years before, or wait a second, another 31 years before Jerusalem is destroyed by Titus. That just can't work. That, that means the prophecy just goes out the window. It can't mean anything. And that's why they, a lot of them said, see, can't really know it. But the break is in there. So you either have to have a continuous interpretation of it, meaning you have to keep all those years together, or you have a gap interpretation. And then, you know, the critics, it's like, oh, yeah, gap. Yeah, sure. See, you have to come up with something. But it's there, and it fits exactly of history, and it fits reality of where we are. And not only that, there's other instances of where prophecy talks about a break, and we, we accept it gladly and willingly because we see in the context it just is. It's how prophecy is. But we, we believe there's a break. It's presented in the text. And it says after the 62 weeks. So we get to the end of the 62 weeks, but Jesus' death, which is the Messiah being cut off, and it says, again, the Messiah, that's Jesus, has to be Jesus. The Messiah will be cut off. That's his death. It has to happen after the 62 weeks, but before the 70th week, because there's, there's events in between there. And it says, and the people of the prince who come will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's A.D. 70. That's Titus, the Roman general, comes in. That's history. Again, that's not made up. There's a sad and, and sorry documentation of what happened in there, that Jews, million Jews were killed others driven out, and, and the city was razed, the temple was burned, and so that was 70 A.D. Those two things happened after the 62, or after the 69 weeks. So it already puts a gap of about 38 years in there to try and account for. So the gap is there. It's like, how long is the gap? We believe that the gap is, we are still in the gap. That we're, it's 2,000, almost 2,000 years and counting until this 70th week arrives. It just it goes together beautifully when you accept what the scriptures have to say about the timing of this, that this week of years, this seven-year period, is still in the future. G, let me, let's just look at these couple of verses here. Isaiah 9.6 says, A child born to us, a son given to us, and then you have a gap of almost 2,000 years and counting. That's my addition. And the government will rest on his shoulders. It, it isn't there yet. The government does not rest on Jesus' shoulders yet. His name called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So that's Jesus, child born to us 2,000 years ago. The government on his shoulders hasn't happened yet. There's a gap. That's a gap of 2,000 years almost. We accept it. We believe it. We understand it to mean what it says. And then Zechariah 9 uh, and 10 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, just, endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then we have the gap. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That isn't here yet either. So you have, in a space of two verses here, a gap, 2,000 years. Space of one verse in Isaiah 9-6, the gap. So it's not hard to, to believe and to understand that God has a gap here that the church is in. It was, a, it was a, a mystery in the Old Testament. We are in it, 
praise God that the Gentiles got a gap here. Thank you, Lord, that it made a way for us to be brought into his kingdom. But I think it's clear that we have a gap. And so then we want to look at verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So again, there's terms in here. It's a description. It helps us understand if we'll just pick it apart and believe what it says. And it says he... And so that that he, the antecedent to he in verse 27 is back in 26, the prince who is to come. So it says, after the 62, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary. That was the Romans. They came in and destroyed Jerusalem. The prince who is to come is going to be of these people. So again, we see from the, the text that this Antichrist person excuse me, that we're talking about in the future is from this revived Roman Empire. We talked about it in the earlier chapters. He's coming from the people of the prince who is to come, is coming from the Romans, from the Roman Empire. And there's a lot to say about how how the Roman Empire kind of dissolved, but it's going to come back. The Roman Empire in the same area, the same group is going to come back to power in 10 nation confederacy. But it says he makes a firm covenant with the many for one week. Uh, so these prophecies fit, uh, these Daniel's prophecy fit exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24. So we're just about there. I think we're going to make it. <laughs> so Matthew, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 24, and it's a snapshot of what it's going to be like when he comes back to the earth. It's not pretty. It's not a good picture. It's in our future, not in our future if we belong to Jesus, but it's in the future of the human race and could be very, very soon. 24.14 says, The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus is talking about the end here. He's talking about end times, end of the age. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So he's talking about the end times. The abomination of desolation is what Daniel talked about. Daniel's talking about the end times. He's talking about this time at the very end of the age in this 70th week, this seven-year period, separated from the 69. He says, then, uh, when you see this abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So this is a, a coming time. It's a time that's worse than ever, has ever been before or ever will be after. It's, a, it's in the future from where we are now. <laughs> so it's, it's, not a, it's a rather disturbing thought that that's what's in store for the world, but it is. We have to believe what God says and we have to prepare. We have to prepare our hearts. 
It's the only way we can prepare for that. People die all the time. They die of accidents. They die of old age, of disease, of violence. Every, sing, every kind of way you can think of, people die. So we understand that in the future there's going to be a terrible time. But even though they may die in some kind of terrible way, it would have happened to every one of them eventually anyway. And it will happen to us if the Lord doesn't tarry and if we are older, like me, you know, I'm on, I'll be on borrowed time. So it's going to come, but we have to be prepared. But in terms of the context of this, this brings us back to Daniel, to our prophecy that he is talking about 70 weeks, 490 years to accomplish all those six things. They aren't done yet. And the last week is yet to come. Jesus talks about it as the end time. Daniel says it's going to be in the end. It's going to be a seven-year time. And, and Jesus in twenty four twenty one says a great tribulation. So we're not making up terms when we talk about the tribulation. We, we're wondering about the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. We're not making it up. It's biblical. It's what Jesus talked about. It's coming in the future. That prince who is to come is the Antichrist, the man of sin, the beast. Got all sorts of terms for him in Scripture. He's revealed in Revelation 13. He's the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6. He's going to convince Israel that he has a peace treaty that's going to work for them. Never been done before. All the presidents that I can remember all wanted to have a plan to make peace in Jerusalem and Israel. Peace in Israel. Somehow we've got to make it happen. This guy is going to be the ultimate in making the world believe that he's got the plan. He's going to make Israel believe it. They're going to sign on. It says, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So he's going to make a seven-year covenant with Israel to say, seven years, I'm going to take care of you. And I believe that he'll even allow somehow that their temple will re be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Think about that. Is that how in the world could that ever happen? You look at the, the circumstances today, something major will have to happen for this guy, in how persuasive he is, no matter how, to say that they will allow the Jews to build their temple up there. I don't know how it will happen, but God does, and he says it will. They'll make a covenant for a week. But of course he's a liar. His father is the father of liars, and he's going to pull the rug out at halfway through. It says, in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So he's going to be having them in the temple doing their sacrifices again. At the middle of it, exact middle point, he's going to say, nope, sorry, done. I know I made a covenant for seven years, but pff, hey, I'm in charge. Over. And so they're not going to be happy about that, but it's going to be put up with it or die. We, we saw the picture back in chapter 8 of Antiochus Epiphanes, that cruel, horrible king who did the exact same thing almost to show in advance what that will be like. And he will do it to the nines when it comes to the future. Jesus said so. It's not going to be a good time. And as we look at Revelation 13, that chapter that talks about the Antichrist, it was given to him, that's to this Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So there'll be tribulation saints, if you want to put that title on them, believers. So, as sad as it is, if you miss the rapture, you better 
take it to heart. When all the believers leave the earth, you better double down and go, okay, I guess I missed it, but it's worth dying for. I'm going to trust in Christ because there's going to be a multitude in that seven-year time that trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. They'll die for their faith, almost all. It does say in Joel 3 that there will be survivors that make it. They'll walk through, but it'll be a minority. There'll be many, many martyrs in that tribulation time. Don't be one of them. Trust in Christ right now. Don't wait another day. You don't know if you have a day. But if you miss and you're still alive, then do it. Trust in Christ. Be willing to die because the time is going to be so hard. That's, that's what it'll mean for you. If you want to be saved, if you want eternal life, count on dying for Christ, but that's okay. It's worth it. It's worth it. It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Well, back up there. It says, war with the saints to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. This is granted by God because it's his world. It's his plans. Nothing can happen in this world, even in the tribulation, unless God grants it to him. And it says it was given to him to, be, to have authority over every person on earth. Every person on earth. And it says, all who dwell on the earth, and that's a phrase that talks about unbelievers, people who all they can think about is the earth. They dwell on the earth. That's, that's where their eyes are. That's where their hearts are. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. If you worship him, you're done. If you worship the Antichrist and you take his mark, you're lost. Everyone whose name was not written in the, from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb, who was slain, all who, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. So if your name is not written down, you're not going to be able to fight it off by your will and say, oh, I'm not worshiping that guy, blankety blank, whatever. You'll worship him. If you don't belong to Christ, you will worship the Antichrist, period. You will. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. I think that is very prescient to anyone who hears this message, anyone who hears this scripture, listen up to it. So I guess, does it need to be said that we need to be ready to meet the Lord? We need to be ready. And it doesn't mean we need to be, you know, strong as Samson or, or any other thing. It just means our hearts need to be surrendered to Jesus Christ. I believe that these events could come to pass very soon. And before they do, that the church, believers in the world, will be taken up, caught up to be with Christ. And that's going to draw a line. And then after that, we're looking at the 70th week. We're looking at this last week that's coming in the future. My question, I guess, is are you ready? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a subject. It is uh, towering over the earth, and yet it's obscure. And uh, the majority, the vast majority of those on the earth today probably don't even know what it says. And if they have heard it, they write it off and don't even care what it says. But God, you will not be denied. You will have your way in this world. The plans are coming together exactly as you said. The timing is yours, and it looks like it will be soon. We don't know that, but you scolded the Pharisees for not knowing the seasons 
We don't know the day, but we're certainly looking at a world who is in rebellion against you, and our country is um, growing more rebellious all the time against you. So God, I just pray that the ones that you love and the ones that you're going to call, Lord, call. (laughs) Bring them in, Lord, please, and come soon. We want you to come soon. We love you. Help us to be faithful witnesses until then. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you, Jesus, we pray in your name.